Hi, welcome to our weekly three-minute therapy podcast. And uh, three-minute therapy is my book, which is all about rational emotive behavior therapy, REBT, and that was devised in the 1950s by the brilliant psychologist Albert Ellis, who's written over 80 books on the subject. And uh, just to tell you a little bit about REBT, it's based on the idea that our emotions and our behaviors come from our thinking, not from situations. And that's a very powerful idea and a very positive idea because if your emotions and behaviors come from your thinking and you don't like how you're feeling or how you're acting, then you can change your thinking. And there's a particular type of thinking that leads to emotional and behavioral disturbance, and that's thinking in terms of demands. Must, should, supposed to's, have to's, escalating our preferences into demands. And there are main, three main areas where this exists with people. The first is a demand on oneself, and that takes the form of because I strongly prefer to do well and get approval, therefore I absolutely must. And if you disapprove of me, this proves I'm no good, I'm a loser. The second area of demands is a demand on others, and that leads to resentment, hostility, and anger. And that takes the form of because I prefer that you treat me fair, easily, and hassle-free, therefore you must, and if you don't, then you're no good. And uh, the condemning others leads to anger. And the third area is an impersonal area of one's life, not a demand on oneself or others, but rather a demand on the conditions of one's life. And that takes the form of, because I prefer my life to go well, therefore it must go well, and if it doesn't, my life is awful, I might as well escape in eating, drugs, procrastination, or worse, suicide. So that's the basis of these interviews, and we interview people on all uh, areas of professional life, and I've just been joined by my podcast partner, Mick Berry. Happy to see you, Mick. <laughs> my apologies. My yeah. apologies for being awake. Yeah, but better late than never. <laughs> Thank you for your you... forgiveness. Yes, I'm glad you showed up here. So, uh, and we're interviewing today Amy Keller Ladd, who has is a health journal journalist. Is that correct, Amy? Yes, yes. I uh, I uh, recently founded a mental health lifestyle site called Mental, and I'm the former editor-in-chief of Women's Health. Wow, that's great. Mental.com? Uh, Clubmental.com. Club Eventually, you will be able to join Real Club Mentals if my plan goes according to plan. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, Mick, did you want to say any more about yourself? No, I've just been practicing REBT for decades. That's about all you need to know. I'm a practitioner, not a therapist. Professional, right. Not a professional. No, yeah. one pays me, no one pays me for it. Yeah, but in a sense, you are a professional author. Mick and I wrote a book together called Stage Fright, 
on public speaking anxiety and how to beat public speaking anxiety. Well, it, it's super interesting because I actually recently um, found a study showing that before public speaking, and you guys, maybe you guys like did this study. I don't even know, but um, <laughs> no, we didn't. It, it, okay, if you're if you're freaking out, if you're having a lot of anxiety around public speaking, and you tell yourself, "I am calm," that doesn't work. If you tell oh. yourself, "I am excited." Then somehow in this study, people did better. They were more confident. Um, they were judged better by their peers, et cetera. And, you know, what the study showed was it, you know, it, it associated, um, and Dr. Michael, I'm sure you know this better than me. Um, it associated anxiety and excitement, both as like, you know, sort of high level emotional states. And somehow if you could make yourself feel excited about something, you could reduce the pressure on yourself. Right, right. Which yeah. I found fascinating because I always think when people just tell me to calm down and I have anxiety and OCD, I'm not just going to calm down. Yeah, right, well, right. To be hopefully concise in explaining what I think happened there, people can have anxiety about anxiety. And if you tell yourself, I'm calm, you're reinforcing the idea that I must not have anxiety. If you define the anxiety as I'm excited, then you at least don't worry about whatever feelings you're having so it doesn't escalate. I think uh, yeah. a, a more elegant approach could be that uh, I can have anxiety and it's not gonna hurt me. So I don't even need to redefine it as excited. Eh, I have anxiety, all right, I can deal with it. And it doesn't escalate because if we do talk in the book, if you tell yourself, I must not have anxiety, that's a great way to make it spiral out of control. Totally. I mean, it sounds, I mean, it sounds a lot like, you know, again, being a health journalist, but also having OCD myself and having gone through numbers of types of therapy, including CBT and, um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure and response therapy and the idea of like going toward your anxiety versus pulling away from it. Um, I think is what you're explaining, right? Being much more effective. If you say to yourself, like, don't think this thought, don't do this thing, don't feel this way. It's just giving more power to the thought and the, and the action. I right. think the reason for that is there's an inherent must there. You must not think this thought. You yeah. must not feel this way. And as I was saying, and as REBT explains, it's must, this kind of must demand thinking that leads to anxiety. Well, and, I, I love that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, Albert Ellis did say the craziest thought you can have is I must not have a must. Oh. <laughs> I yeah, love that. That's a secondary. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. it's um the idea of should, shoulding yourself. You know, I've always been like, we have to stop that because um, it goes to exactly what you were saying, Dr. Michael, that like, if I should do something right, I suck. If someone else should do something, they suck. And now like basically the whole world sucks. And, and it's interesting because I recently did a story about New Year's resolutions and looking into the data and talking to experts. And they were talking about how if you frame a resolution from a should or from a negative place, like I should stop doing this, it's going to be less effective and, and more pressureful than if you frame it from that positive sort of like, what can I add to my life? So I, I find it really interesting that that's kind of the basis of um, REBT. Yeah. Well, One of the things, I'm sorry, Mick, go on. I was just going to say it's REBT says having a desire is good. You don't try to eliminate desires. The trick is 
The stronger our desire, the easier we turn it into a demand, a must, a should, a have to. And I want to point out, Amy, I don't know the exact words you said, and this is not to reprimand you, but it's to show how semantic precision can be very useful. I believe you said we have to stop doing that regarding shoulds. <laughs> well, there, there's a very good point. To be semantically, and we could rewind the tape and see, but to be semantically precise, because I try to catch myself doing this, even though that's an innocuous expression, really, but we'll do best to stop. We have the freedom to continue. We yeah. don't have to get rid of our shoulds. We There's no reason we should get rid of our shoulds. We'll do best to get rid of our shoulds. Right. We shouldn't should ourselves about shoulds is basically what you're saying. And as a journalist, I appreciate that because words definitely matter. Well, yeah. and, and I'll say it isn't that we shouldn't show ourselves about shoulds. We'll do best to not show ourselves about exactly. shoulds. Not that yeah. we shouldn't show ourselves about shoulds. We can, we'll do best not to. Michael Edelstein is quite amused by this. Maybe that's a reason for REBT, Michael, to create amusement. <laughs> is that it? <laughs> to do what? Create amusement. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, well, that's the reason for my doing these podcasts with you. <laughs> and Amy, Amy, let's get down to some of the things uh, that I read in your writing. And one was you had a term climate anxiety. Is that right? Could you elaborate yeah. on that? Yeah, climate anxiety. So apparently now there are climate aware therapists um, and climate anxiety is not in the DSM, as you know, um, and it's a relatively new term. It's also called eco anxiety, but therapists are talking about people coming in and there are studies showing, you know, that like half of Americans are very concerned uh, um, and not just concerned, but like have fear and dread and all of these things about what's going to happen. I mean, this is interesting for RABT, what's going to happen in the future because of climate anxiety. And so um, it's, it's really, it affects young people a lot. It affects marginalized communities because they're already living in places, um, that happen to be, you know, more affected often by, by climate anxiety because of, you know, you know, all kinds of reasons and, um, people who already have anxiety disorders and are prone to this. Um, and the tricky thing with climate anxiety is, as you know, with regular anxiety, the treatment is often to help someone understand that what they're anxious about isn't really a fear. But with climate anxiety, if you believe in climate change, um, these are realistic fears. You know, we're being hit by Hurricane Ian and, and things are happening all the time. And there's really sort of like no break in this now because we keep getting hit with these things. So, you know, we did uh, discuss with therapists and look into the studies of what can you do if you have climate anxiety and, you know, how can you soothe that in yourself and also, you know, take these small steps toward, you know, helping yourself by, by, by helping, um, the environment too. Yeah, I have, um, an answer for that. Yeah. I, but first I have a question, Amy, did you say half of the population has anxiety about this? Well, it's this is according to one study that was run by the American Psychological Association uh -huh. saying that 48% of people in the U.S. are very concerned about the climate. That's not necessarily they have climate anxiety. Um, right. But, okay. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I think, Amy, you're too young for this, but I grew up during the Cold War. Oh, and, I was around for the Cold War. I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm younger than I appear because I'm also a former beauty editor who's worn a lot of sunscreen in her life. 
Uh, okay. You mean you're you're older than you appear? Is I'm older. Right? I'm older. Yes, I'm I believe older you said you're younger than you appear. Oh no, I'm older than I appear. Yeah. You appear quite young. See, yeah. keep me around, Amy. I'll keep correcting <laughs> your, your diction um, or your your sentences. So, um, yeah. So, growing up in the Cold War, uh, people who have a big fear of climate change try having a big fear of nuclear war every day during my childhood, every day during my adolescence, during my teen years, and throughout my twenties into my thirties until the Soviet Union folded. Uh, I had a fear of nuclear war. Well, no, it didn't continue. What stopped it was a friend of mine said he talked with a man who was a Unitarian minister, which is neither here nor there. But this guy said, you've got to realize that every generation throughout the history of mankind has felt they had proof of the world ending. Every generation throughout the history of the human race has felt they had proof of the world ending. And my friend said to him, yeah, but this is nuclear war. It could happen. He said, yes, it could, but every generation is certain, certain they have proof that the world is going to end. And I mentioned this to a friend of mine who's 30, a former drum student. Uh, I'm a drummer for a living. In any case, I, I told him, Every generation has certainty that the world is going to end. He said, yes, but this time it's real. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah. Um, Mick, if ahead. I may get a word in here edgewise. Uh, Amy, so how do you deal with climate anxiety in, in your advice, in your health journals? Well, you know, it's all the usual stuff that you would do for general anxiety. So like we can move beyond that. But But the ways that you can sort of, take action, which make you feel like you're taking agency over the situation, right? Um, are little small things. So for example, and this will help, this will save you money and also help the environment. Like, okay, it's the winter. If you have a programmable thermostat, you turn it down seven to 10 degrees Fahrenheit lower at night. Um, and you're basically going to save 10% on your energy bills. And then you're going to like help the world. Um, another thing is, you know, and I don't know if we all want to cut our meat consumption in half, but if there, there is a stat that like, basically if, if every American could just not cut out meat entirely, but, but cut it in half, we could really slash agricultural carbon pollution. So that kind of thing. And then finally, voting. I mean, it sounds obvious, but right, like who is going to be making these policies? We need to be voting. And there are all kinds of studies also around voting being generally good for mental health, um, mostly because you are, you know, you're, you're taking a feeling of empowerment, you're taking away that feeling of helplessness and, and doing things. So, um, you know, and then we have the usual things, obviously, like get out in nature, do the classic things that help with anxiety. But, um, you know, with climate anxiety in particular, if you can feel not that you're being perfect and you have to change everything in your life, because of course that creates another kind of pressure, but if you can do these small things. Um, so what you're saying really is to change the situation. If you improve things in the ways you just mentioned, then there might be less of a climate problem. What we're saying is the elegant solution is to get rid of your anxiety by getting rid of your must, getting rid of your thinking, since it's our thinking that causes our anxiety, not bad situations. And since practically everyone is anxious, they'll find something else to get anxious about 
But if they learn how to uproot their anxiety by changing their thinking, then that would be less of a problem and they'd be generalizing less from one bad situation to another and making themselves anxious about that. Does that make sense? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. These are sort of things one can do in the moment. You know, I'm sure it takes a while for REBT to work. And as someone who has OCD, if I could only change my thinking, well, I'd be living a happier life. Uh, well, I think happy. you, I think you can change your thinking. I've um, changed my thinking work. quite a bit, but uh, you know, work. I've been in therapy practice. for many years. Yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, I, I personally, I mean, this is interesting to me because I personally don't believe I can change my entire thinking patterns and just be done with OCD. Okay, well, maybe we can have another interview uh, where we, Mick and I could uh, help you get over your OCD because oh. there are some things most therapists miss with OCD that are EBT pretty much nails. I wanted to get onto another subject that you've written about, and that is uh, eating disorder. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we reason. Yeah. Could, could I say one quick thing about climate change? Uh, well, we don't have that much more time. So. Ten seconds. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, okay. It's yeah, right. good to take care of problems that could be a problem, and it's good to take care of emotional disturbance around the problem, both of them. Michael Edelstein and I are both vegan, and I've been a vegetarian since 1976, so I'm bragging. Go on, Michael. <laughs> That's why I have you on for some uh, makes me laugh. Okay, Amy, you were gonna you were gonna talk about um, eating disorders. Yeah, I mean, we did. Uh, we just did a big report called "New Year, New Eating Disorder." I mean, it's around the concept that at this time of year, you hear a lot about "New Year, New You" and anti, <laughs> you know, anti-obesity messaging, pro-dieting messaging, and you know, we found some studies that showed that not only does this kind of messaging exacerbate eating disorders, but it can actually lead to it. Um, and if you look, I mean, I was digging deep in the new year, new you, because, you know, I come from women's media. I come from magazines. We did use that phrase. And we often use that phrase, not in an attempt to shame people, but looking back, right. A new year, new you is often become about new year, new body. And you see tons of weight loss messaging and dieting and, um, restrictive dieting in particular around this time of year. Um, and, as I was doing all my research, I was finding that the NIH uses the phrase new year, new you, the Cleveland clinic uses the phrase new year, new you it's, it's literally everywhere. And so, um, I don't know what REBT would say about eating disorders, but I'm going to tell you, it's a pretty dire situation with eating disorders on the rise. Um, and this kind of messaging really contributing to it. Yeah. But again, REBT says the reading, the reason you have an eating disorder that you can do something about. You can't do something about your genetic predispositions, which certainly is a factor and an influence with many people, but you can do something about your thinking and that's normally escalating preferences and the demands. Because I prefer to have the strawberry shortcake, I absolutely must. Because I have an urge to eat high fat foods, I have to. So again, if you, uproot your musts and shoulds and show yourself again and again and again. As you said, Amy, it's not uh, easy. It takes a lot of practice. But if you do that again and again and again, show yourself you don't have to do what you want. You, there's no reason why you must feel good right now. And you work at that. And we have special methods to work on that. Then you can change your thinking and be much more in control of your eating. 
Yeah, Mick? Well, I would also say watch out for the secondary disturbance of I must not obsess about food or whatever the thoughts are, or I must not have an eating disorder. We are all fallible humans, and we want to be less fallible. But as I said, if you want to be supremely fallible, tell yourself I must not be fallible. And that's a great way to really drive yourself nuts. Do you find, I'm curious, Amy, do you find that people with eating disorders berate themselves for having an eating disorder? Um, yeah, there's a lot of shame associated yeah. Um, yeah. with that and with telling people about it or slipping up too. Um, one of the interesting things from the story we found were that uh, psychologists who treat people with eating disorders often don't see them in January. And that's because they've often fallen for the messaging again and fallen back into their patterns of disordered eating. And then they feel shame for having done that and they don't want to tell their therapist. So um, there's a lot of berating, I think, on all sides of it. Like, why did I do that? Right. I mean, this is interesting. Right. Why did I do that? Why did I slip up? Why can't I stop thinking about this? Um, you know, I don't I don't know. It, it, it seems quite difficult. It seems from from the experts I spoke to who specifically deal with eating disorders that even once you're in recovery for an eating disorder, seeing a seeing a story about, you know, very thin celebrities or, you know, we've been seeing these like headlines come back in the paper. Heroin chic is back. You know, th those trigger people back into their old patterns, even if they don't fall back into doing the behavior. They even if they're in recovery from eating disorders, their thought process does go to sometimes I want that still. Yeah. Um, yeah. And therefore I have to have it. Well, so, hopefully again, with the their must. therapy, they're able to say, I want it, but I know it's not healthy. Um, and I don't have to have it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Mick. Yeah. So I used to have a huge problem with depression. Never got to the point where it was debilitating. I couldn't live my life or at least work and have an income and put a roof over my head. But I have had severe depression. And one of the key components to eliminating it was to get rid of the depression about the depression so that I no longer worried about being depressed. Yeah. And then I could address the primary cause of depression, which is I failed at this task, therefore I'm a loser and my life is awful. But I will say it took a lot of practice. Now, by practice, I don't mean two decades. I mean a couple of months of recognizing, oh, I'm getting depressed. Oh, no, I can't handle being depressed and recognizing, wait, I'm telling myself I can't handle being depressed. That's not true. I can handle it. So I feel a little calmer. And then the next day thinking, oh, God, am I going to get depressed? Oh, no, I'm going to. Oh, wait a minute. I'm seeing I'm getting anxious about being depressed. That'll lead to being depressed about being depressed. Okay. I can be depressed and it won't kill me. I just won't feel good. And it was yeah. several, several months of learning to have the helpful thoughts of eliminating the demand not to get depressed, recognizing it and getting rid of it and then addressing the primary cause of depression. But it did take practice, but it wasn't two, three decades of practice. It was yeah. more like one, two, or three months of practice till I started really getting the hang of it. What well, I, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, uh, you know, what I see, you know, the rise of self care and meditation, everyone should be, should, you should be <laughs> meditating. I mean, this, these are the messages you hear, 
Why aren't you meditating? Why aren't you deep breathing? Why aren't you, why aren't you helped by a bubble bath, et cetera. And like the stress of not being able to de-stress in the same way everyone else is, 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 is real, right? You're like, well, what's wrong with me? Why is meditation not working for me? And I've, for myself, yeah, (laughs) for myself, I've come to the conclusion that maybe I'm just not a meditator. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Mick, did you want to put in a last word here? Yeah, well, I won't mention the name. I did a type of meditation for 14 years. I went to a college where everybody meditated, and I attempted to levitate to attain spiritual enlightenment. And I gradually came to realize that by attempting to have spiritual enlightenment, I was driving myself nuts. And to be able to accept myself as a fallible human being, I attained all of the tranquility and peace of mind I was ever hoping to achieve by meditating, and I gave up the meditation. I'll, I'll mention the name. It was Maharishi. No, 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 no. Well, I don't want to get sued. No, no. Well, I'll, I'll get sued. I'm the one who made it. <laughs> okay, we're just about out of time. I wanted to thank you, Amy Keller. Uh, Amy Keller. Um, I, Laird, is that it? Yeah. Amy Keller, Laird, health journalist, for joining us and uh, explaining some of these issues to us. And uh, thanks, Dick Berry, my co-host on these podcasts and uh thank you chris rossini our tech engineer and i'm dr michael edelstein author of three minute therapy and clinical psychologist thank you all for joining us